Hey everyone, welcome to the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. Just woke up a couple hours ago and I felt like I didn't have a lot of energy. It took me about 10 minutes to even think about pulling the covers off, but uh, I ended up managing to do it. Yay me. And um, I did my normal morning stretches and breathing exercises and just felt like I don't have a lot of energy these days. Um, and I, th- I think I've found the solution. It's because I haven't gotten uh, enough nutrition. Nutrition is very important, guys. And uh, I think I just haven't been eating enough. I've eat- eaten a variety of things, uh, but I think I need to just add volume uh, and stop um, worrying about... Uh, how much I have in stock and how much I'm just inhaling in food. I, I, I eat a whole, whole lot of food and I sleep a lot. And maybe I need to balance that out a little more. But I had myself a nice lunch right after. I, I, yeah, I, w- I wake up late um, during the day, just how I am. Uh, that might be problematic come Monday because... On Mondays, I have class at 8 in the morning, and uh, I have to bike to school, and it, uh, it just could be a nightmare, and I have to be there until, like, 3, 3 o'clock, so, like, 7 hours of economics class, so, um, I think if I, once in the week, I overcome that hump, I'll be all good. Uh, I was just listening to, while I was cooking, I was listening to... Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and the last episode he had was from a couple months ago, I think, and it's about public executions, and uh, I'm not going to go into so much detail about it, it's about like the pain, like how we like to, it's weird that humans have this weird tendency to enjoy watching the suffering of others, it's really quite fascinating, it's really weird, Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, go listen to that for yourself. But uh, at the end of the podcast, I'm very happy <laughs> because I love this podcast. I've been listening to it for so long, and I recommend it to so many people. But I, I, I was so happy because... So Dan Carlin is... Um, he used to be a journalist, um, but he has these two podcasts. One, which is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And this is a podcast where each episode is up about like average four to five hours long. So it's a lot to a lot to swallow, but uh, an episode comes out every five six months, and uh, he's done series on the Roman Empire, the Mongols, um, the, the the First World War. That one was really really amazing. Uh, another one that was really amazing. Well, they're all amazing, but uh, yeah, another one was the the Second World War on the Eastern Front, and um, so I think uh, he realized at some point that five to six months is a little bit long to have the episodes spread out. So he did, um, I didn't know about this, but he started this in October of last year, but he started another podcast feed called uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Addendum. And it's uh, shorter episodes, about an hour or so, which is like little topics, could be interviews. And uh, I'm excited to jump into these episodes because... Uh, we have here episode one, Imperial Germany versus Nazi Germany. So about the the difference between um, between the First World War 
German army and the Second World War in German army. And I guess this is looks here that this is a this is a previously released episode that I think I've listened to before then. So that's nothing new. It looks like this is like a, a, a what are those called? Like a syndicated episode, a um, a rerun. <laughs> it's funny. I haven't watched TV in so long, so I didn't even know the terminology for that. But yeah, rerun, kind of. And then the second one here is called "Rome Through Duncan's Eyes." It's a it's a interview with with podcaster Mike Duncan about his new book on the Roman, uh, the, the transition between Roman Empire and Roman Republic. So that'll be cool to jump into as well. So all right, now I'm going to jump right into uh, this week's episode. It's with my good friend and colleague, Salma Kadri. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm here today with Salma Kadri. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, do you want to introduce yourself real quick to the podcast audience? Sure. Uh, my name is, as you just mentioned, Salma Kadri, and I come from Egypt. I've been born and raised in Cairo for, I don't know, 24 years now. And I'm currently uh, studying here in Wrocław in Poland, doing my master's degree. I'm doing my first year here in Poland. Mm-hmm. And you studied... In Cairo. Yeah, I studied in Cairo. I did the dual degree in journalism and political science. Mm -hmm. And then I worked there for two years. And then now I'm doing my master. What years were you studying in Cairo? What do you mean? Like Like what? Yeah, like 2000 what? I mean, university university years. Yeah, I started in 2011. I finished 2015. And then in June 2015, I started working and I left work September 2017, okay. which I moved to Poland, to Wrocław, to do the, the okay. master. Well, that's like similar to... Because I was in university around that time too. Okay. And around that time, I was seeing in the news what was happening in Egypt yeah. from D.C. Uh, 2011 is an important year i remember i i remember getting on the metro and seeing people with like egyptian flags painted on their face they're like this and that um and you were that was your first year of university yeah exactly i mean i the time of the revolution which was uh, january 25th of january 2011 at that time i was in my final semester in high school in last year of high school So in September of the same year of 2011, I was supposed to start my first year of university. But yeah, I mean, at that time of the revolution, like these particular 18 days, which I had to stay home. I mean, no one ha- no one went to work or school or any of that. So yeah, for me, like the future was very vague at this period of time. I had no idea if I would ever go back to school, if I would ever graduate, if I would ever go to university. Like, yeah, I mean, the moment was like, yeah, the present moment at that time was super overwhelming that you just want to know how is this going to end rather than you think about your future or any of that. And yeah, it's something like, yeah, none of us have imagined to live through or imagined that it would even happen and was very yeah, extraordinary. So so just very worried and about this moment and how things will evolve and how it will end. And yeah, somehow you're... And it was You're the, fearful of how things 
will evolve to be and you have no idea. It was that I'm very unexpected. It was that well. affecting to your daily life. I mean, like, this is, uh, yeah. the 18 days. So the revolution stayed for 18 days where like people marched to the streets and they camped in the streets in particular uh, squares and famous cities and all around Egypt. And yeah, and I mean, the, the government itself like decided to have like a, a curfew. So people cannot get out of their homes just for like four hours in the morning. That's it. And for urgent needs, but for nothing more. And everything was closed. You don't go to work. You don't go to school. And and I remember like my my parents like with them, like if they order stuff from the supermarket, like they would try to get a lot of stuff because they have no idea of. And this is the thing. It's very. It's like very unknown how things will turn out to be. And you're afraid somehow that you wouldn't have enough stock of food at home. So you try, but not that much as well, because everyone has to also have food. So, but I remember like at least they would try to get like if the supermarket's open or they order it, they try to get like a little bit more food that would allow us like for a week or two, not necessarily that we have to go out and get more food. So I think, yeah, it was, um, it was very unknown the unknown aspect of it's something very new, completely unexpected. I mean, we knew that there are some organized protests and it all started with a Facebook like group that called for a protest on 25th of January. But I don't know, no one took it that seriously. No one, I personally, I, I, let's, uh, yeah, I'll talk about my own personal view. I never thought it would end up this way by no means. So... So we took it very lightly, like when you, on Tuesday, 25th of January 2011, there's an organized protest. And actually on this day, it was not that of a big protest. Uh, things, I mean, on Friday, where things got really serious. But, uh, so yeah, I think starting this Friday. So Tuesday was the first day of protest. Wednesday and Thursday, I went to school. Friday, when things, after the Friday prayers, like, which is one of the things that people are already mobilized somehow in the mosques. And when they got out of the mosques, they some people initiated protests or like, like said some slogans or things like that. And a lot of people followed. And from there, after the Friday prayer, a lot of people were mobilized. And at night especially, there was a lot of like brutal attacks from the police against the protesters, which made things even uglier. And like pol- police brutality was one of the issues like the the people revolted against. So when they met this, like when the police met these protests with even violence and more brutality, this even made things worse. And this was the trigger. Like from this night, yeah, I have not uh, gone to school for the next two weeks until this ended. And and this is was the trigger point or the starting point of this. Whole so somehow the. Wait, so the school operated as normal after two weeks? Or was um, there something different? Must be something different. Or? I mean, yeah, after these 18 days, I mean, they called us and they told us that we were, we can come to school now. And and somehow, yeah, somehow it was normal school days. But, but of course, I mean... I mean, the, the environment itself and the situation was not normal at all because, I mean... Which is, this is like till today in Egypt, we're still suffering from that. On one hand, you had a president who stayed in power for 30 years. It was an extremely corrupted government. 
So you have to deal with this corruption, very deep-rooted, that has been last that has lasted there for a long time, and then the revolution, and all like the like all the changes that it brought after these eighteen days, which is mostly security issues, are even like added more complexities to the situation in Egypt. So on one hand you deal with deep rooted institutional corruption, on the other hand you created need, new problems. Created exactly, yeah. I mean. Until today, I think, I mean, at least this is what they mentioned, that that like this chaotic situation and where security was really bad in Egypt at that time, that it opened the doors to a lot of things that before it might have not been happened. But nowadays, but as like everyone, all the opportunists took opportunity of like this chaotic situation that the country is in. So somehow you deal with how things bad were and the bad side of what the revolution brought or what yeah what this situation has brought which is mainly was i mean the collapse of the police for a while which was a huge issue because definitely security wise you can feel a big difference so for a limited period of time but for a couple of months after the revolution you find that like Police, the police, yeah, I mean, I have no idea if they took direct orders from the government to do so or not, but they completely backed up from the streets. I mean, you can rarely see them, and this is where the military came in. So actually, the military played the role of the police for a couple of months. Uh, police officers were even somehow afraid to wear their formal attire yeah. Yeah, in, in the streets because people used to attack them, used to... Uh, put their cars on fire and stuff like that. They were very angry at the police. So, so what's the what, what was the organizational difference then between police and military? Are they are they not under the the government the same way? Or? I mean, no. The police is a. I mean, the police. They're both security institutions, but the police has. I mean, somehow more of internal function. Sure. To and communal function, but the military does not play that role. I mean, the military, I mean, responsible. So people were for, mad at the police, but not the military. Or? Yeah, because 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 the military does not have daily interactions with the people. I mean, this was job of the police, okay. but not the job of the military. I mean, yeah, then and the military. I mean, to protect the borders, they didn't interact on daily basis with the people. You wouldn't have checkpoints of the military. It's always the police. So, so people were were mad at the police, not the military, mm-hmm. at that time. So, what was I saying? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got down like a very technical uh, line of thinking with the uh, the difference between police the military, and military. Because yeah. I don't know, like, when, if if I'm trying to imagine for uh, for like a, a lockdown sort of situation mm-hmm. with uh, any sort of armed, uh, uniformed individuals or groups. Um, then I don't really make a. I wouldn't make a, such a big distinction between the military and the police, but maybe uh, it's a different context. Yeah, here. and also the military. But the military I mean, has in, this in traditional Egypt. role of, uh, like, I don't, I don't know exactly how to put it, but I just know that, that from uh, previous studies that it's sort of it plays a equalizing role. The 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 military, like, if something goes wrong, then they come to like make things right yeah I, I, this, this, it's hard did, for me to imagine but, yeah. but, maybe but I think in Egypt yeah I mean generally 
like in the media or they try to glorify much the role of the military and somehow they're the protectors and the saviors of the country and yeah they they the one that protect our borders protect protect us from any external interventions or any of that and yeah as where egypt is located and and i mean how things are in in neighboring countries like libya or sudan or or syria or lebanon or israel or any of that so so at least this is what's the rhetoric that's out there but they always make us feel that we're somehow threatened and that we're a country that very much like yeah other countries would like to take opportunities of if 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 it goes weak or if the military is not the strong mm-hmm. which i think is a rhetoric that many i mean country like israel use a lot as well to justify why they have like the a large spending on the military and and all of that So use this rhetoric of how threatened you are and as a justification of of why you spend that a lot of money on the military and a justification of how important this institution is and to glorify it and glorify its role and all of that. Yeah, so it's a, it's this dilemma that we learned about in class actually this last semester it was like security um I guess security securitizing entities they exist to address a certain security issue but they also have to perpetuate their narrative so that they can continue to exist yep. and continue to be funded and that's the dilemma and yeah i guess this is the case in egypt and it's not a not the most friendly neighborhood in the world i guess not um, at all have, not at all yeah and you have a history of that and during 2011 i don't know looking back i remember at my university and in dc there was like this <laughs> i don't know why maybe i know why it's like there's this like weird hope that, like the arab spring was a good thing yeah uh, i don't know how was We it for you really okay <laughs> all right so i'm not the only one because I, no. i do remember seeing um i do remember seeing on the metro um i was so my university was outside of dc and you take the metro to go into the city and i don't i didn't know like any of the context or anything i was just like waiting on the platform and these uh all these egyptians with the, like the flags and the flag like pa- face paint and stuff were like really excited and going into the city probably for like a demonstration or something yeah. and uh so i saw that and then i remember um, somebody at the library or uh, outside of the university library was doing like a little journalism project and asking people what their thoughts are on the arab spring and i was you know a freshman or sophomore <laughs> like second year like oh it like, could be a good thing you know like, like people deciding what they want um but uh but the, the more you learn about this region it's sort of um the if you if you destabilize like the center of, I, i'll call it the center of gravity in these countries if you destabilize that like it's so these places are quite diverse and then they, they're fragile and there's like all these groups that are going to try to um take advantage uh, and exploit moments like this and uh, and you saw it uh, in the next two years and then until now we we have we see the uh, the effects so like i guess Tunisia is more or less okay as far as i understand i don't know and like egypt is okay libya is not syria is not uh I think had, like, bahrain was. also had like tried but like yeah. you don't think you don't even hear about them but uh, everywhere saudi arabia they tried algeria they tried i'd be <laughs> i'd be so uh um hesitant 
to try anything in Saudi Arabia. I was a Saudi citizen. I'm not gonna try anything. Like, nothing new. Just like I want everything. They're, they're, those, they're scary. Yeah. They're scary. Have you been there? No, never. No. Never. Okay. Cool. But do you have you have to get a visa for Saudi Arabia? Uh, yes. Okay. So yeah. you were telling me yesterday that you have to get a visa for everywhere. True. Almost yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Let's say I don't know at least eighty percent of the countries in the world, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's not fair, but yeah, if, you, if you're a, if you're a country that's like making policies of visas, then you're gonna look at the track record and see uh, that this region you, you're gonna wanna make some sort of law to make. Everyone happy, yeah. Restrictions like yeah. we have, we didn't make uh, Egypt wasn't on the no. seven countries. Is that still in? I like, think not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened with that. Last I read, I think they like they they abolished do, okay. this rule yeah. or something like that. Yeah, because it was actually making it difficult for people who like were legitimately they had visas. I know at my university, there were uh, in the U.S. They had. There's like uh, students who they went home for Christmas or mm-hmm. some or Thanksgiving or some some holiday. I don't remember what time of year it was, and and then they they're like, how do I get back? If the so unbanned. they went back home, like so they went to home Somalia to like, yeah, or to yeah, okay. to like Sudan or whatever. Okay. And uh, and it's just like, what? How do I get home? <laughs> I don't know. Was Iran part of it? Because there's probably, a lot of Persians probably. in the U.S. and they're just probably. like sort of stuck there. Yeah. So I think they they did away with it. But so in 2011. Uh, and you're studying political science yeah. in in. But I just Cairo. want to add a point yeah. on when you said like how we were hof- very hopeful. Yeah, I want to get back to that. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say that really where I stand today that I completely no, let's say complete. It's a very complex thing, really. But I personally like yeah, lost faith in in like civil resistance or revolutions or mm. any of that. From yeah, and I mean, when I was just like a couple of months ago reading the news about Zimbabwe and how they they revolted and the president resigned and all of this, and we have to Zimbabwean students and yes. so they were the same thing. They were extremely happy and very hopeful. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I had Tawanda on my on the podcast and I talked to him. Okay, okay. I, I should have I should do another episode of them because a few months out now um, since uh, President Mugabe yep. was removed. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, could be hopeful. I don't know. I really. I, I sat. I sat there for an hour with him. And he, he was telling me about about Zimbabwe, and uh, that's like the first time I ever really learned about them. I don't know anything still okay. really about it, and uh, he's hopeful. Uh, but I'm like, I don't know. This is uh, when I you when you destabilize the status quo. Don't be hopeful. You, you've been to no. I've no, been there as I've been in that situation. In that situation yeah. Really. Yeah. And and. So I completely, yeah, when I follow news like this, like, I'm definitely not hopeful at all that this will bring any any good change. Let's think about, like, the way that Egypt was with uh, Mubarak, and then the way Zimbabwe was with Mugabe. Like, they had this crazy uh, ups and downs with their economy, with the inflation, uh, hyperinflation, <laughs> and, uh, like, the 90s were pretty hard for, for Zimbabwe. I, I don't know, it was... Egypt more or less in the thirty years of Mubarak, more or less stable as in the uh, region. Actually, at the beginning, he did. I mean, people would believe that he did very well and things were okay. 
but so for the like past the 10 years so. for the past i mean yeah people mostly focus on his last 10 years okay. where he grew old and some people think yeah it's just an image but he actually does not rule anymore and when they started somehow to pave the way that his son might be the the coming president and might like want to to run in in the elections and yeah it's like a very elitist political group who rule everything and every aspect of the country yeah. so kind of like a we side. never i mean we never had war or any threat of that i mean security wise i mean if we talk about security in terms that there's no threat of violence or war but still i mean there is a lot of police brutality people were not happy with the police with the education with the healthcare so generally the living conditions the gap between the poor and the rich um freedom so so all these re- legitimate needs and, and and demands but but yeah i mean i wouldn't say that the situation in egypt was similar to to zimbabwe in terms of i don't know poverty or the economy or security or any of that i think we were doing better but but still uh, people were not happy enough with 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 these conditions and they wanted and yeah it's, it didn't start as a revolt to to topple down the regime it started as a revolt for better living conditions that we want more freedoms and the slogan of the revolution was aish hurriya karama insaniya which means aish means bread which is symbolized yeah food and and yeah we want better economy better money better food and hurriya is freedom and karama insaniya is human dignity so this was the slogan like bread freedom and human dignity this is what we want and what we're calling for it was not topple the regime or any of that but this is how things evolved when somehow the regime at first and the president didn't want to give much so the demands got higher then it was too late i mean it was too late i mean when he started okay I will I will have a vice president when which means when we when he assigned a vice president that means my son will not be the president because if anything happened the vice president will take over um so I mean but this happened like a bit too late that it was already and where a lot of people were already mobilized and and I honestly I honestly think this is my own my personal view i have no idea but i think yeah somehow that he had an agreement with the military or something that that i will resign and leave which was not the case in libya which was not the case in syria which was not the case in in other other countries where they had revolutions where their presidents decided i will stay no matter what but for him no he said i will resign as long as that you keep me in egypt safe he i mean he and his sons and his wife they're still in egypt i believe he's he's a very old man maybe he's hospitalized yeah he was sick last i saw pictures yeah, of him yeah his sons both of them live in a very one of the most expensive compounds in egypt like uh in, because in egypt we have a lot of the gated communities yes, they yes. live in one of them actually people see them today and they even might welcome them and they're not even mad at them anymore because of how seven years people forget easy and not only this i mean seven years after the revolution now people think living conditions are worse than what we have revolted for 
at that time. So maybe your rule was not that bad after all. So this is, this is what people think. So they are not even mad at them that much as they used to be. That's like us with George Bush. Like people, people started like uh, on like comedy shows, late night shows. They'll 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 talk about how uh, it sort of gives this impression that George Bush wasn't so bad. And I was like, do you, how do you? I wasn't even that old, and I, I I would not for a second think George Bush wasn't that bad. He was a disaster, but mm-hmm. but uh, the, somehow just uh, we have him. Donald Trump now, and okay. people think people think that people think that uh, he wasn't so bad. Come on. Yeah. But people don't remember. Eight, seven, eight years is a long time, it seems. I don't know if humans can can conceptualize and then put things into perspective that well. Um, and at the time of like 2011 and then into the revolution, were people thinking back, let's say, seven to eight years in Egypt's own... Uh, so in, the, in like the early 2000s, for example, was there anything... Were they thinking about that or is this just... About what? Any sort of uh, historical context for this moment oh, in 2011? Because okay. uh, I'm saying, like, they'll forget. I think there was in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, we had a movement in Egypt called the seven, um, 7th of April movement, which is, yeah, it was a 7th movement as well. I mean, this is, I think, the, like, the most close thing to... But honestly, I don't, I don't think there was any remarkable events... Right, so just and as like, I told you, like even stable status quo for like thirty years, more yeah. or less, more or less. Okay. And again, oppressive regimes—they don't let you talk that much. They don't let you oppose that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, who controls the media after all? And 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 who controls what gets out there and whatnot? I mean, there is a space of freedom, but it's very limited, and and it's not like you can oppose openly against these these regimes. So. And as I told you, I mean, even the 25th of January 2011, it was not that of a big deal on that day. And no one has expected that things would evolve this way. So, because as, as, as you said, like, we didn't imagine that there is actually, like, this, like, that the, there is, like, a lot of opponents to, to the regime. We didn't imagine that, yeah, actually people would take this seriously and take to the streets and revolt. So, um, and then uh, this is like switching topics, I guess. Um, at some point, you studied in Sweden. Yes. Yes. How, uh, when was this? Okay, so when I when I was doing my bachelor. So since like my first year at the university, I wanted to go abroad. I wanted to have an abroad experience. So when I had the opportunity, I applied, and then I. I, I got accepted in Lund to study there for one semester for an exchange program. And this was... I traveled 20 August 2013, came back to Egypt 20 January 2014. So it was around two years after the revolution. But in that summer of 2013, there was a second... Exactly, at that summer 2013, there was a second revolution slash mm-hmm. military coup yeah there's a disagreement on what to call it yeah. um, but that did that, that did that affect as it wasn't as big of a shock or was it it wasn't i mean just sort of like uh, it's sort of like a part two like a continuation yeah. of the same uh yeah m- yeah motion, uh, momentum i guess yeah yeah uh, this 
Yeah, and I mean, because since 2011, since the revolution, really people kept revolting almost every week yeah. for, for different reasons and for all of that. And I think this is one of the, after like after the Muslim Brotherhood regime was toppled as well, I mean, when the military came in, I think one of the goals were, I mean, enough with the protest and, and all of this. I mean, they somehow suppressed all kind of protests. They make it, you have to take a permission from the police to organize a protest, which they will never give you a permission for. So they felt, okay, this is very destabilizing, that it's not, it's not going to work like this. No more protest. And, and yeah, you feel like people were so oppressed in their lives that suddenly when this fear of, of protesting and express, expressing, expressing mm -hmm. like was completely destructed. So every weekend they want to protest about something and go out and, and enjoy this, uh, I don't know, this new atmosphere of, of you can say what you want and all of this. So I think, yeah, I mean, when the military came in after the Muslim Brotherhood, they decided, okay, that's it. I mean, no more protest and protest and, and we also need like the police and the military need to focus on other stuff. So that's it. They suppressed completely protests, which was also not, not good as well. But anyways, yeah, 2013, we had the second revolution. And, and yeah, that was just the summer before I went to Sweden. I remember even... Due to this, we had also a curfew, which means, yeah, like after 6 or 7 p.m., you cannot get out of your home. Everyone has to stay at home. And this also led that my flight was delayed for like 12 hours. And I had to contact the university. I missed like the first orientation day due to that. But I mean, things worked well after all. But yeah, same thing. It was crazy years, really. Like, yeah. I, like wonder, I, yeah, I wonder these like basic functions like an airport functioning or I don't know it's hard for like me to hospitals uh, it's, or yeah it's hard for me to imagine like having a curfew I've mm -hmm. never had it but uh, an airport like how do you if you're like the manager let's call it of an airport I don't know what that's called and there's like, revolutions going on and like curfews by the uh, military and things like how how that works and if you're like, taking care of uh, if you're running an airline like how do you, how do you like, uh, come to terms with the fact that uh, there might be like significant uh, issues with running your business because there's a, an unstable uh, country that you're flying in and out of? Yeah. No, I mean, okay. There, there are some jobs where they knew it was necessary. I mean, you can still walk down the street or take your car and go somewhere. But there's a lot of police, uh, what they call it, like checks, checkpoints, yes. and stuff like that. So you just, I mean, need to make sure, yeah, you have like a permission, you have something that indicates you work in this place, something like this. I mean, if it's an emergency or, or women is in labor or stuff like that, you, I mean, you can, you find hospitals open like for, and, and it's not like the streets, there were protests everywhere in the street. I mean, the protests are in a very particular yes. area and it's not everywhere in Cairo. So most of the streets are fine and you can move in. But but they somehow it's a way they want to control the movement of the people. They want to actually make sure like they don't um I don't know, like no any like people no any destabilizing acts or things does not get out of hand or any of that. So it's a way for them to better and easier easily more easily control the movement of the people. But still, I mean, for, for jobs which is necessary to do 24 hours, you can still do it. 
but you're very right that we our economy didn't just like has suffered tremendously due to this i mean i think the 18 days shutting down your country for 18 days it made us lose a lot in terms of money in terms of the economy so so it's very true that it hurts i mean till today seven years and eight years after we're still suffering of the consequences of these events of what happened 2011 2013 and our economy has suffered tremendously we have like the tourism industry which was like i think our third most important uh how to say it um like the third like sector yeah Yeah. most important sector in the economy exactly where you the money comes from and you have this sector who has been destroyed completely people don't trust the security exactly we don't get tourists anymore Mm -hmm. till today eight years seven years after we're still suffering we never got our tourism industry back we never got it back because yeah i mean revolution happened there's a huge security issue it's not just egypt what happened to the neighboring countries i mean in terms of migrants that we have received in terms of isis and terrorism terrorist groups that managed to come into egypt bomb attacks and terrorist attacks i mean as I told you, like suddenly you're not just dealing with 30 years of deep-rooted corruption, you're also dealing with huge and serious issues that came as a consequence of what happened in Egypt, in the revolution, and in the neighboring countries. So, which add layers and layers and layers of complexities, really. So... Do you- uh, I just thought of this now. Uh, I don't know why I just thought of this now because usually it's one of the first things I think of. <laughs> what was the role of like a foreign? Um, f- there's there like foreign fingers in the pie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. I, I want conspiracy theory. Do you mean that? No, like, no, no. Con- like were there like were there legitimately uh, Americans doing something sketchy or Europeans doing something? Yeah. Yeah. Like what? Because we usually when we think about the uh, Egyptian revolution. I don't know if we really focus so much on what maybe America did secretly or not yeah. so secretly or like what Europe did, but they all sort of had something to do with the Arab Spring. Yep. So what if you know? Uh, I definitely don't have any concrete information on, okay. on such a topic. I'm but, not. I'm not like. Uh, I'm not CNN. I don't need like. <laughs> but <laughs> we can. We can just speculate <laughs> on things. So it's all good. But at least, at least, like, this is the rhetoric nowadays, and for the last couple of years, that they like um, question completely the authenticity of the revolution and if it was actually driven by the will of the people or driven by the foreign powers as well. So, no, I mean, this foreign fingers, since yeah, since the revolution and, and even the Muhammad Morsi, the president of the Muslim Brotherhood, used to say it a lot, that definitely there are, there are foreign fingers playing in the country and, and moving forward their own agendas and all of that. And this idea of conspiracy theories, which is, um, I'm personally fed up with that every single issue we have, we have a conspiracy theory that some... That some people are colliding against us, or or 
so we definitely have this in our rhetoric, like foreign fingers, conspiracy theories, blaming everything on other countries or on the West. For a while, like for us, Israel, which is a country that I believe politically we're very friendly with and we cooperate with, but for somehow in the rhetoric in the media, we still tell people how we hate them and they're so bad and how they want to destroy Egypt, will take any opportunity to occupy us and destroy us and do to us what they're doing to the Palestinians and all of that due to the history. And, yeah, so so they also, yeah, I mean, like Israel was somehow like an entity that you can blame everything on. So, yeah, I mean, some gas pipes that used to, like some people would, would blow them up like every couple of months. They always blame it on the Israelis. They must have done that. That some terrorist attacks, they would blame that the Israelis somehow opened the way for them to come in. So... Not necessarily everything on Israel, but still you blame it on the U.S., you blame it on the Israel, you blame it on foreign countries, on Arab countries that don't like you that much, on whatever. So, But there's no evidence of, uh, of, of maybe the United States or Israel having anything to do with destabilizing Egypt uh, in this last decade? I'm, I'm honestly... I mean, I, I, I don't know, and I'm sure like this kind of information would be like with the intelligence or okay, something like that, yeah. but... I truly believe, yeah, of course. I mean, this is what the whole world do to each other. And yes. of course, I mean, after all, it's interest. And you see how can you move events in this country in a way that would serve best your interest. And then you support that and you yeah, I mean, put I in say, money. And, and I only say because uh, we, <laughs> the U.S. had uh, a lot to do with Syria and Libya. And this was all started in 2001 as well, or mm-hmm. 11 as well. So, okay. so uh, uh, maybe there we don't know yet, and I haven't looked so deep into it. But I'm I, sure they I'm did. Sure, I'm yeah. sure they did. I mean, the US everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> We've talked about this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure they did, and Israel the same thing. I mean, when it comes to neighboring countries, and yeah. I mean countries that are important for them and their stability or or instability, yeah. because this is also what I believe that somehow. The Western countries, I mean, they destabilize, but they try to destabilize in a way that does not become harmful to them. So, like, we're going to destabilize Syria, we're going to destabilize Libya, or or, or we're we going to feed but... upon the war, and we're going to get our interests out of the war, and in every crisis there is opportunity, so they try to take these opportunities, but at the same time they try to contain it in a way that I think this is what happened with Syria, for instance, that Syria became an issue for Europe when a lot of migrants started to go to Europe from Syria. So I believe that if Syrians never moved to Europe and they stayed in Syria and Europe was not affected by the issues that are happening in Syria, there would have never been a big deal for them what's going on in Syria. You mean just Europeans? Because Americans have all... Yeah, I mean for Europeans, for instance. Like... Okay, I'm willing to interfere and intervene and, and I'm willing to, to support these groups and give them arms and give them money and all of that. But in a way, in a way, I mean, I also want to contain it that I, the ramifications of this, I don't get affected by it. How else do you think the United States has uh, been at war for 16 years? It's because we don't, at home, see uh, things blow up. Uh, from from the from the it's not on our soil it's a, yeah. all the way over there yeah 
Uh, I get what you're saying, but I don't think they... I really don't think they give a shit about... Uh, I guess, yeah, you're right, they contain it yeah, there. Conflict but management. They, yeah, but Just they, manage it. But they don't, uh, they don't contain it in the sense of... They, they, <laughs> they don't plan very far ahead, which mm -hmm. is like one of the first things you, ne you need to do when it comes to strategic planning, which is you need to know what your goal is. But like, it's for, for a long time now, uh, the U.S. Like, military activity, this is just the U.S., U.S. military activity doesn't seem to have a concrete goal. There's no, achieve, there's no end to achieve, and so you just sort of wander around and spend money and lose people, and, <laughs> and, uh, and don't really, you don't know why you're there at the, uh, after 16 years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right, they're containing it in this, inside the borders of, uh, or in this region. Like, Syria wasn't contained at all. It spilled over to Iraq, yep. Yep. of course. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how we I got mean, on that topic. I mean, contain it to not harm their interests, but I honestly think it doesn't matter what they do, they will get affected by it. I mean, war is no good for anyone. And yeah. and I'm sure the U.S. is affected by all the chaos that's happening everywhere. I mean, after all, it's, it's a very interconnected world and... and and it's there's no way you won't affect get affected by it one way or another. I mean, one way is how this country somehow is is hated to a large extent. I mean, this is this is an impact as well. I mean, yes. which is they, not a good. If they ask people, actually, they ask people around the world, uh, who's the number one threat in the world? It's 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 the United States. It's not ISIS. It's not China. Everybody's trading with China. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everybody's trading with, uh, with with the European countries, and and uh, who's the one who has bases in 120 countries? It's the United States. Yep. Yep. Anyway, I talk about the U.S. too much. Okay. We, we, were, we were trying. We were trying, I guess, to talk about your experience in Sweden. Yeah, right? sure. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Personally, best experience in my life. Yeah. Definitely the best five months in my life. And honestly. <laughs> No, really, I'm not sure I will I will ever experience something like this again, ever. I remember, no, I was extremely happy, and I think it was just first times of too many things. So first time, yeah, first time to travel on my own, to live on my own, first time to get this kind of exposure, meeting people from everywhere in the world, first time to travel that much, get yeah exposed to this new very new culture coming from egypt to sweden such a huge difference was it the first time you saw snow did you see snow yep. yeah <laughs> actually first time first time i saw snow in my life was in helsinki in finland okay because where i was staying in lund in southern sweden which is they get snow but i left in january and by that time there was snow but not that much but i traveled in november i think so in Helsinki to, to Finland yes. and this is where the first time I saw snow in Helsinki and then I traveled to the northern to a city called Sariselka in northern Finland and for me this like it's it took us like 16 hours ride by bus to get there oh my god it's in the on the borders with Norway and really when I arrived there impeccable for me because it was everything was absolutely white and it was the first time for me like, even in Helsinki, there was snow, but, like, it's not, like, everything is white, it's not that much. But there, when I arrived, like, layers and layers of white snow was very nice. It's amazing the first... Uh, I don't know about the first time, because I don't remember. I was, like, really <laughs> young, but, like, after... There was a time, it was, like, a long time since I, like, 
walked on snow. I don't remember when, what part of my life. So I, there's like one moment in my life where I just remember like walking on snow and that crunch. It's like, it's just really satisfying. Yeah. yeah. And the scenery, I mean, yeah, completely different and new scenery for me. Like everything is super white. Yeah, but it was nice. And what was the... What was the study program? Was it a really, was it a really relaxed study it program? Because because I want to, I have the same sort of impression of my uh, study abroad in Berlin. Okay. Like that um, was life changing, and um, it was the study program that sort of takes a backseat mm-hmm. to the the real experience is everything else. It's yeah. not in the classroom. Yeah, exactly. It's like all the other things, yeah. uh, the people you meet the different culture it is a different culture uh, even from between the US and Germany it was like quite different and, uh, imagine from Egypt to Sweden <laughs> yeah right right so the, for example like recycling bottles uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at, the, at the at the supermarket they have the machines and you put them in and they like scan it they like spin it around and scan it and you get money back for mm-hmm. recycling and that's uh, very different from the states yeah, where right. there's not much recycling. Okay. There is recycling depending on what state, <clears throat> but it's such a big thing in in Germany. That's just one example. Um, and yeah, tell me more about uh, Sweden. What was? Yeah. And I've never been there, so yeah. I don't know much. Okay. I've been only to Copenhagen, and that's like kind of like it. But I don't. I can't speak to uh, how similar uh, it might be or how different. Okay, I. Um... I mean, as the country, uh, first of all, the studies were definitely, as I said, like, it was very relaxed. And, yeah, for me, the social part and getting to know people and going out and all of this and traveling around was the was definitely the part I enjoyed the most. But Lund, I mean, it's in the very southern Sweden. And actually, it's, um, it's just an hour train from Copenhagen, so it's very close. And I usually used to travel to Copenhagen, take the train to Lund. Um... Yeah, I mean, for me, there. Yeah, I realized a lot, really. I mean, uh, I mean, generally, Scandinavian countries has a very high standard of quality of life and all of that. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, that I had my own bike and I used to bike everywhere, and when I come back home, like late at night, three and four a.m. on my own on my bike, something that I could never in do Egypt. in Cairo. So. Yeah, I mean, even enjoying this freedom. Also, one of the things, you get to really explore yourself and explore who you are. And it was the first time for me that, like, you absolutely have no supervision. I'm not just saying about parental supervision, because in Cairo, I live with my with my parents. Oh, so when you were studying, you were living with your parents? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, I studied in Cairo. My parents live in Cairo. Yeah. People would only live on their own. If they're, for instance, from Alexandria and they're planning to come and study in Cairo, then they would look for a place to live there. But if usually, if your family lives in Cairo, you would definitely stay with them. Is it usual, like, people will just stay in their city and study there? Um, I mean, mostly people want to study in Cairo. Okay. So this would not be the case if you're not from Cairo. Yeah. But, but if you're in Cairo, in Cairo, then, you're, just, yeah, then okay. this, you will have the best universities in, the, in this city, yeah. which is... You know where else is kind of like that is Spain... Like, Madrid, like, okay. Like I'm just no, like, uh, like students in Spain, they just they want to stay in their hometowns to study. Okay. Like, so, uh, I know that 
uh, from my experience. They want or don't want? They do. They do so want, like, okay. So they, uh, I was living with uh, Spanish Erasmus students in Lisbon, and they just didn't know how to take care of themselves. Okay. They didn't know like how to clean, cook, any, any yeah. basic things. And uh, it's because uh, their culture, they just, they're very yeah. like, much staying at home all yeah. the time. And their moms are doing everything. And which is entirely different from the U.S., yeah, yes, which yeah. is uh, when you go to university, you that's like they they, they put you in the deep end and then you, <laughs> and you uh, and you have to sink or swim because yeah. you 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 it's the experience it's part of the package of of being a college student is you have to learn how to how it is to be on your own you're still mm -hmm. in a bubble it's a mm -hmm. university but you're learning how to live on your own you got to do laundry you mm -hmm. like some people have a really hard time <laughs> like, doing laundry Finding clean, food to eat, okay, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah uh, keeping things clean, uh, negotiating with your roommate. I think this is very important. Yeah. I think it sucks to like they'll pair you with a random person as a roommate. It, it really sucks, but it teaches you something about yeah. about how real life is. You never, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get along with everybody. Yeah, of course. Um, but you might get along just great. I, I got along just great with all my roommates. But yeah, so for you, it's like the first time you've been yeah, exactly. on learning, your own, le learning by doing. But I'm I like yeah. But going back, I am telling you that yeah. The thing, one of the things I really liked the most is how how I really got to how I got to experience yeah this freedom that I don't have any kind of supervision and not just parent supervision, actually more of societal supervision because in Egypt, in Cairo generally, I mean. You have somehow a rigid traditional or cultural structure or system which you have to follow. So if you don't want to follow, then you will somehow do what you want, but privately. So, but you cannot do it in public areas or in public places. So there's some sort of like societal guilt. Yeah, so, some, like something you're, like you're that. You're doing it in, in private. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and this is very common. You really find this is happening in most of the conservative societies yes. that... We can do what we want to do, but in private spaces, not in public ones, because it's not acceptable to do it publicly. Because yeah, so so this was also one of one of the things that I really enjoyed. I mean, I somehow got to understand what do I do because I want to do, and what do I do because of my society, yes. and what I don't do because I don't want to do, and what I don't do just because of the society that I live in. So, really, it's a journey of self-exploration. I think this is, I mean, even here, in, this is an ever-going process. Yes. And, and I think traveling is the best way to do it, really. Uh, you put yourself in completely new situations where if I'm back home, I would have never been put in this situation, so I would have never known how could I deal with it and how it will affect me or any of that. So, and yeah, I mean, I've really met very very amazing people i've met particularly there are two people who till today i mean i keep since sweden i meet with them like at least once a year and and i've yeah i've made very very precious relationships for me that i truly appreciate and if this is the only thing i got out of this i'm, I'm the happiest person in the world so and it's amazing, really, because it's five months and you get to meet these people where you feel, yeah, you have known them your whole life and, and you somehow are dedicated to the relationship and especially when it's, yeah, like long, uh, long distance. 
but you're dedicated that you make it work and it will continue and you make the time that to take like some time off and go visit them or they come to visit you or all of that so yeah a lot I mean it broadens up the way you think it uh, after all yeah it gets you out of this box or framework that you have been raised in and live in and you think the whole world is like this but then you realize oh the world is completely different and although we're very different but at the same time we're we're somehow the same yeah. so and it teaches you, just, you a lot yeah you make that uh, assessment like how are they different how are they the same yeah. what's what works good here what works better back home all that together and it's a uh, well this might be a little bit of a deviation it's related yeah. but it's actually something from a book I'm reading right mm -hmm. now called Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson he's a psychologist at the University of Toronto I don't know if he still is but he's in some sort of a controversy now but not because of this study but he um uh talks about how basically as what how our brain works and how our, our behavior works is we we have this idea of comfort zone yep. like well basically comfort zone but when we when we encounter something new we the default actually is uh, a response of fear mm -hmm. and then and then you you interact mm -hmm. with it you you interact with this thing that's new and you you negotiate it in, in your head uh, and in your emotions how this is going to affect your, your life now and then if it's truly not a threat then you you start to be very comfortable with it until yeah. it changes again somehow but uh, it, it's like we have this response to new things that's fear it's just how humans are or uh, not just humans but also other animals but it's just a behavioral thing but the more, the more you travel the more you like experience new things I think you inoculate yourself mm -hmm. against the this 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 knee-jerk mechanism of fear yeah and even now if i like travel to a new place like i'm not afraid it's just i'm not the most comfortable mm -hmm. and then i uh, i do that interaction and I, that calculation in my in my head and, and emotionally just like okay uh, i'm familiar with that now i know that's like the place i can go to get a kebab like this yeah. and that yeah, yeah. is like and, and you just start to learn about places and um, and you you stop having this uh, anxiety about it. Exactly. And uh, people who uh, go from their homes to something that's completely uh, alien, that might be a little too jarring. But then the more you do it, the more. Like, I don't know where, where did you travel when you were uh, studying in, in Sweden. Uh, I've traveled. I mean, neighboring countries. I traveled to yeah Denmark, Finland. Uh, I've been to Germany, I've been to the UK and to Scotland, I mean to England and Scotland. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, these are the countries that Do you have to. any plans for future travels? Where do you want to go? <gasps> That's the thing. I was just telling this to my mom today in the morning that somehow I'm not into... I don't like solo traveling, honestly. You so don't like I don't like solo oh, okay. traveling. So so That's I mean, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I like to travel, mm -hmm. and but for me, I always want to travel for the purpose. Like I'm going to travel there because I'm going to study. I've also went for a summer internship in Indonesia. It was to teach English, so I know I go there. I have work to do like eight hours a day. For me, I appreciate more like when I travel for longer time period of time, and when I have like daily commitments and something to work in. 
I don't like like three days I've been this country, three days I've been this country. No, I like to somehow take it slow, to live in the place, to get to know the people, to... Uh, for me, definitely, this is the kind of travel I like to do. But when it comes to solo traveling, I've never tried it. I mean, uh, so you... Like you, backpacking and... Like, and um, when, I, when I think of solo travel, it means just by yourself, not with other people. Yeah. So... Uh, but what but you're I mean, describing I mean, is, is like uh, sh- like short terms, like here and there for three days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, so but I, you're mean, not I don't against... mind travel alone. Okay, which yeah. is I which I did, which I did multiple times. Okay, so this is a different but... uh, term than it's like backpacking. Yeah, you don't exactly. Like, but yeah. you like okay. a sort of like um, how would you call? It? I don't know what to call that. Like <laughs> they staying in one spot, long term, yeah. uh, stationary yeah. sort of travel. Yeah. yeah. But. Uh, like here, even in Poland, I mean, a lot, a lot of you guys like would wouldn't mind at all to just go visit a city on on his own or her own for like a yeah. couple of days. I wouldn't do that. You don't. Okay. I wouldn't do that. I mean, and the the, the thing is, um, like right now, I personally feel that I'm don't want to like touristic travel in general. I don't want to do it anymore. I feel I have I don't know maybe because I have traveled a lot in the last period of time, so I feel okay. I'm. For some reason, I'm not very excited about this kind of travel anymore. As I told you, like, like I love traveling, but in terms of, yeah, going like at least for three weeks, four months, and yeah, to volunteer in something, to teach or to work or to study, and you get to live in the city, get to know it bit by bit. Because for me, usually, yeah, like the first couple of weeks might be the hardest a bit so so you actually get to enjoy the place when you get to stay longer and more and and you truly you truly start to know something about the place and you start to gain something on your own so for me this is definitely the kind of travel that is like I'm more satisfied when I do and I feel I've gained and learned something from and truly knew the place and and get to enjoy it but short term travel I mean you spend a lot of money not necessarily but depends but yeah you get to spend more and you somehow don't get to explore the culture and the people that much because yeah i mean you don't get the time to do it yeah you're only there to and you have like a plan kind of but if you're just if you're living and working there you're living there and you you get to feel kind of how it is to live there so have you ever done or have you ever looked into like workaway or peltex do you know these things no. so there I've, I've used it before so okay. you can volunteer um, okay. and it's just like anybody who wants to be a host so you have to pay to be a member mm-hmm. but like anybody who wants to be a host can post a, a volunteer um, posting mm-hmm. and then a uh, then as a member uh, to, to be a volunteer you can like you're allowed to send messages to them and say, "Hey, I want. I'm interested. Tell me more." Mm-hmm. And then you can negotiate okay. like what time you want to go. And uh, I've done it, and yeah, it's it's changed my life. Like that's how I lived in uh, a number of places, and that's the, how I started working at hostels. Actually, okay. I like long story short, I just needed a place to be between Istanbul and Berlin uh, for a month. And I was on this website, and I was like, okay, like, what's between? And I looked at Bucharest, and there was a hostel who okay. needed some help, and then I went ahead and uh, did that. And uh, since, since Between then, Istanbul and Berlin? Yeah, so I went to Bucharest, Romania. Okay. And, uh, oh, Bucharest? Bucharest, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, 
yeah. And since then, I've worked uh, at a total of eight hostels. Okay. So it's just it changed my life that way. Uh, I just loved, and I found something that I you know I wouldn't have known that I liked doing, and uh, I didn't wasn't just, if I had just passed by Bucharest, I might not have liked it actually. But uh, living there it was like it was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, like some something different. Yeah. Send me the links to these. Please. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You need to you need to learn about couch surfing, work away, help X, all these things. All these things that like to me are just like part of my travel toolkit. Uh, I think um, not everybody knows about it, and it's just options. You know, you have couch surfing for sure is like a, a sort of short term thing. Like mm-hmm. I'll be there for a couple of days and I'll, I'll meet a local, and this is really cool um, for like short term stuff. That uh, and actually, if you were to do this, then maybe you would start liking short-term travel more because mm-hmm. then you'd like you're connected with somebody and you see how they live in this yeah. uh, city or town yeah. um, and then uh, long-term stuff would be like work away because they like to have long-term like mm-hmm. a month or mm-hmm. so uh, volunteers so yeah maybe that's good tips for people who are listening too uh, but we're uh, we've run out of time oh, so okay. <laughs> yeah. it was really awesome having you on thank you i'm yeah. glad to be here